in order to end the disease, to find treatments and cures. We need more shots on target. We need to know and understand what causes ALS, how we can reduce the harms, how we can make ALS livable until we find a treatment and a cure. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Connecting ALS. I am Jeremy Holden, joined again by uh, my co-host, Jessica Chapman. Jessica, thanks for coming back. Thank you so much for letting me come back. Week two is a team. Uh, we didn't scare you off. You were an exceptional co-host last week and, and looking forward to continuing the discussion. Thank you so much. It was a privilege to join you last week, and I'm happy to be back this week. Yeah, we have another great conversation to bring to listeners. Jessica, you and I had an opportunity to talk to David Zook, a consultant for the ALS Association and the chair of Fagri Dinkler Consulting, and with Abram Bielowskis, the Associate Director of Government Affairs for the ALS Association. We did indeed. It was a really fantastic conversation where we not only revisited the FDA We Can't Wait action meeting, but we also had a chance to discuss what's on the horizon related to the Promising Pathways Act and Act for ALS. Yeah, real exciting times in the continued fight to expand access and, and to speed up the process of bringing promising treatments to patients. So I think you and I get out of the way and we hear it now from Dave and Abram. Sounds good. We are joined today on the phone by Dave Zuka, consultant with the ALS Association and Abram Bielowskis, Associate Director of Government Affairs. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Yeah, so we're excited to have you. We are just coming off of the We Can't Wait action meeting over at the FDA where representatives of the ALS community were able to talk to the FDA about the need for urgency, flexibility, and really getting promising therapeutic treatments to the market as quickly as possible. So I want to get to where we go from here, but first I kind of want to set the stage and set the scene, I guess. We heard frustration from the folks who, who spoke to the FDA at that meeting about having the same conversation over and over again. What is the current state of affairs in terms of getting promising treatments to the community? What are, what are the paths that are available? What can FDA be doing that it's not doing? Well, I guess, what was the need for this meeting? Where did it come from? Well, I can get started on that. I mean, there are a lot of factors uh, in play here. One is what is in the drug development pipeline. So the FDA can't act unless there is something to act on. And fortunately, that is uh, really improving in, uh, for the ALS community. We're seeing uh, more investment, uh, more products brought forward. This is the fruit of also the investment in research. You have to have an understanding of what you're targeting to develop therapies and how you're you know, what mechanisms you're trying to address. So that understanding that's fostered by the research is leading to the therapy development. And then uh, the question really revolves around uh, the data that's produced through the clinical trials that are conducted once a uh, potential therapy reaches a certain stage of demonstrating safety and then is introduced into human clinical trials. And that's where the process uh, becomes really uh, very uh, expensive and challenging from a development standpoint and a, and a regulatory standpoint, because you have to produce the data to demonstrate effect of the therapy as well as uh, safety. And the FDA uh, has a number of authorities where there's a high unmet medical need like there is in ALS. There aren't 
many therapies, particularly therapies that have a strong effect on slowing progression. And so they have various authorities that can accelerate uh, the development of products if they meet certain milestones. And also the standard doesn't change for approval, but uh, they have different flexibility uh, to bring a product forward. So this was something that was really highlighted in the development of the ALS drug guidance that uh, first was done by the community and contributed that information to the FDA for an official guidance that exists now and really tells the drug developer community, this is how you can move forward more quickly. Some of the context for this being the, you know, I guess the, the latest impetus was the development of Amalex's AMX 35, which had met certain thresholds for safety and efficacy. And in petitioning FDA for approval, you know, FDA said they needed more clinical trials. So what authority does FDA have? Some different terms get thrown around of compassionate use, you know, emergency access. What are the different pathways that are currently available? Like, let's unpack some of this a little bit for folks like me who uh, aren't deeply rooted in the in the jargon? Well, there, there are two components of that uh, that you just mentioned. One, one would be expedited pathways for regulatory approval. This is different than access to the therapy when it's experimental. So let me, let me like you said, unpack this. And, and on the expedited pathways, there are options such as accelerated approval when you're using a biomarker, for example, rather than uh, to demonstrate uh, likeliness, likelihood, excuse me, of, uh, of clinical effect. And then there are also tools like the authority to approve a drug to market based on a single large clinical trial rather than two. That's the standard is is two clinical trials to demonstrate effect and to reinforce safety, uh, but they have the authority to approve based on one trial and then require the company uh, after they start marketing the drugs to provide more data to support the effect and safety. So those are a couple of examples of, of ways to move more quickly. And I and in the in the I'm not privy to the discussions, of course, between the, the company and the FDA. But what the situation is with Amelix is whether it can be approved with one trial or it will require a second. So the access to experimental therapies component of your question is uh, an authority called expanded access. Primarily, there are a couple of other ways to do this through uh, the clinical trial as well, but under expanded access, which can be for an individual, for a medium-sized group, or for a large-sized group, the patients together with their clinicians petition the FDA, and more often than not, uh, much more often than not, the FDA grants these. They are then, through an expanded access program, provided the drug and uh, they're also monitored for safety, even though they're not formally in the clinical trial. Uh, of course, they want to see if any, any difficulties arise. And that's a means of getting access to a, to a therapy when it's in the experimental stage. 
Dave, you kind of already answered this, but you mentioned the ALS guidance regarding drug development. And as you know, on the FDA action meeting call, Dr. Cavazzoni said that she was moved by what she heard and that the FDA and the industry do need to do more. So with those factors at play, where do we go from here and what do those next steps look like? Well, I think there are a variety of elements of our response. One is to continue to make sure that the agency understands the patient perspective. And people with ALS, of course, brought that forward in the We Can't Wait meeting. There are other ways to do this because it's, it's also uh, something that you can measure. And they do that for populations, disease groups, uh, as well as specifically around products and trials. Uh, so we're going to continue to make sure that that perspective at a variety of levels is well understood at the agency, work with sponsors when appropriate uh, to bring that forward. The, the association has uh, the ALS Focus Program, which is a, a very important platform for developing insights into the perspectives of people with ALS and their caregivers. Uh, increasingly, caregiver viewpoints are uh, very important, particularly in serious diseases. So um, we're very active on that front. And then also in terms of uh, policy development, we talked about some of the um, tools that are available to the agency already. And this may be a, a, a good way to talk a little bit about uh, the legislation uh, that's developing, both Act for ALS and the Promising Pathways legislation. And maybe I could kick it over to Abram to take that piece. Yeah, I'm excited to get Abram in on the conversation. And, and Abram, as, as you're well aware, the meeting was happening right around the same time that the Act for ALS bill was being reintroduced into Congress. Of course, the association also backing the Promising Pathways bill. So talk to us a little bit about those bills uh, and what they would accomplish for the community in terms of adding even more tools to the agency's toolkits and to the ability to bring drugs to market. Absolutely, and thanks for having me. I really do want to emphasize one thing that I heard that really stood out to me at the We Can't Wait action meeting, and that's when Dr. Cavazzoni said that the FDA has, quote, a finite set of tools when it comes to ALS, and we agree that these tools should be flexible and deployed with maximum speed when it comes to ALS, end quote. I've heard a lot of times that the FDA has sufficient authorities, and some of those flexibilities, like Dave mentioned, are the guidance the fast track authority, breakthrough therapy authority, accelerated approval and priority approval. If the FDA's guidances and existing authorities are constraining the agency, we have an answer to that. And we can learn a lot from other countries like the European Union, Australia and Canada by creating a provisional approval path for treatments for diseases with high unmet needs. And that's exactly what both of these bills focus on, the Promising Pathway Act and the Act for ALS Act. So let me start off with the Promising Pathway Act. In the context of U.S. drug development for diseases for unmet need, the Promising Pathway Act would be a really global change in how drugs are approved for diseases with unmet need like ALS. It would establish a new mechanism for rolling time-limited provisional approval of drugs that show substantial evidence of safety and relevant data establishing a positive therapeutic outcome. It would also mean that provisionally approved drugs would be approved on the condition that the manufacturer would complete 
further studies to establish statistical significance of whether the treatment is effective or not within a certain amount of time. Um, like I said, the European Union and other countries already are using provisional approval. It's sometimes called conditional marketing authorization. And for medicines where the risks outweigh the benefits and there's less comprehensive data than is normally required, normally manufacturers will go the route of conditional or provisional approval. Uh, we have been really heavily engaged on the Promising Pathway Act from the start, and there were a number of really substantial changes that we secured throughout. And this is really the third iteration of the bill. The first iteration was called the Conditional Approval Act, and it was introduced, um, I want to say, at the end of 2019. And since then, we've been in conversations with congressional champions and have been able to secure some really meaningful changes that we think go a long way to making this a viable pathway. And that includes reimbursement and actually paying for provisionally approved drugs. So making sure that once they are provisionally approved, there, there could actually be coverage for those drugs. That's a, lot, that's a pretty big problem in the current context of approved drugs, even in the current you know, accelerated approval authorities. Also, post-market and confirmatory trial requirements after the drug is provisionally approved to make sure that we're getting the data that we need in order to support a final approval of the drug. So that's that's a lot to unpack there. Um, Want to kind of open it up and see if Dave has anything else to offer as well. Thanks, Abram. Um, I think you did a really nice job of, of outlining this legislation and pointing to the fact that it that it exists this authority exists in the in the European Union and has been used for a number of compounds over there so we get into a situation where uh, people in that region can have access to a therapy earlier than they might in the in the United States because of this flexibility uh, you mentioned accelerated approval that it, it that can't be used for all the compounds because it's a specific type of process and many of the compounds aren't eligible for that. So this would be much more comprehensive in its availability. It is, I believe, continuing to be focused on uh, conditions that are life-threatening and or uh, in the pandemic or epidemic context but it, it really is uh, something that would harmonize uh, how we operate in the United States with a successful program, getting earlier access to patients in the, in the EU. So that's promising pathways. Um, let's move into Act for ALS. What, what distinguishes it from promising pathways? I, I, it, it sounds like there's different paths for different compounds based on where they are in the development process, the audience size. Like, Talk me through the need for multiple pathways to go forward and, and what, yep. what gap does Act for ALS fill? The way that it differs from the Promising Pathway Act, let's start with that, is that first of all, I want to emphasize that the Promising Pathway Act would impact the entire drug development process for diseases that are eligible under the pathway. So severe, debilitating, meet the pandemic needs. It would be a global change within those contexts, not just impacting ALS. That's important. The Act for ALS Act is much more tailored to ALS and neurodegenerative diseases. It's specifically focused on those, in fact. And one of the primary focuses of the bill is providing federal funding to access experimental drugs. 
And that is currently something that under the current expanded access program, the cost of that normally falls either on the patient or on the manufacturer to pay for compassionate access to drugs um, outside of the clinical trial. So that is what expanded access is. It's compassionate access outside of the clinical trial where there are another, no other real options for the patient. So what the Active ALS does is essentially this. It, it is a unique bill because it requires a research objective to support the clinical trial if a grant is made for expanded access. And that's the first part of the bill, providing funding for people with ALS and other neurodegenerative diseases to access experimental drugs. The second part of the bill is to invest in neurodegenerative disease research through a new FDA rare disease neurodegenerative disease grant program. Most of the research funded in the ALS space and you know across any disease is done more traditionally through NIH, through CDC, through Department of Defense. And so FDA has begun to actually do grants of its own. And we, we really want to build on this because the funding that FDA provides for research is, is really powerful in that it could increase the number of clinical trials for people with ALS and actually research innovative trial design and how they can be done better, how data can be used differently to support new approvals and, and drug development. And so this new program at FDA would be essential in, in advancing the neurodegenerative disease space science. It would also establish the first federal entity that's explicitly charged with accelerating drug developments and approvals for ALS and, and the other neuro diseases, and also create an action plan to have FDA create an action plan for drug development for these diseases. So much more focused on expanded access to experimental drugs, advancing research and coordinating across the different agencies, whereas the Promising Pathway Act is about creating a new drug approval mechanism. Now, Abram, both of these bills, uh, Promising Pathways and Act for ALS, are being reintroduced into Congress. What can the ALS community, other communities, and allies do to ensure that they're successful this time around? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, you know, introducing a bill is easy and it gets, you know, the hard part is actually getting it passed. And so the ALS Association is going to do whatever it takes to pass into law provisional approval pathway and also the Act for ALS Act. The process for passing a bill is designed to ensure that issues are debated and the legislation is reflective of buy-in from all stakeholder communities. And that's going to be particularly pertinent to a drug that impacts the entire drug development process like the Promising Pathway Act. And so while, they, while there are processes that exist for fast track for passage of bills that where there is broad consensus, changes to the drug development process are subject to a particularly close level of scrutiny, and that's to maintain the integrity of the process. Because of Act for ALS Act, and especially the Promising Pathway Act to a more global degree, impact that process, there's going to have to be a lot of talk about the bills, and they're going to be referred to the committees for hearings, and potential changes will happen now that they've both been introduced through the committee and markup processes. And so these bills will then have to pass out of the committee and then to the full house um, before it gets sent to the president for signature. For the Promising Pathway Act, congressional champions have actually advised us the strategy going forward is to get the bill included in next year's prescription drug and user fee reauthorization. Um, we call that PDUFA, and that's a 
big vehicle, we call them, um, that impacts the FDA, that a lot of changes are included and on a, a, you know, a semi-regular basis whenever the reauthorization takes place. Then we've been advised that because of the promising pathway and the provisional approval impacting the larger drug development process, that is the most likely and most promising strategy for passing that bill. For the Act for ALS Act, we're going to continue to push as hard as we can um, to get you know, up to 290 co-sponsors if we need to and make sure that we get a hearing on the bill and that we can get it passed via regular order or working with leadership to try to get this passed under suspension of the rules or unanimous consent. Whatever we got to do to get it passed as soon as possible is what we're going to do for both of these bills. So in order to help, you can really just visit als.org forward slash advocacy and visit our action center. You can take action right there send emails to your members of Congress, um, tweet out your support on the bills, asking your members to support them. But also then you should register with your local ALS Association chapter. Let them know that you wanna advocate. We'll make sure that you're positioned to make a difference and win when it matters most. Abram and Dave, you both alluded to this, and Scott also mentioned this on the We Can't Wait FDA action meeting regarding the United States being behind other countries. Can you speak to why the FDA or why the United States is behind countries such as the European Union? It's an interesting question because in some respects we're behind and in others we're ahead. So it's this, I use the term harmonization. That's something that the regulators are trying to do as a line, how they handle the data, be able to use data from different countries in their own processes. They're never gonna be identical but to make them more efficient and proceed together and be aligned, there's a lot of work going on in that, uh, in that regard generally. And what drives it, frankly, are examples like what we're dealing with uh, that make it clear that it's unfair to uh, communities that cannot get access as rapidly as in, in other countries. Now, Bear in mind, of course, the, the, uh, it's called the European Medicines Agency, the equivalent of the FDA and, and the EU. I mean, this is a very serious, rigorous uh, regulatory process, right? We're not talking about just letting anything uh, get into the marketplace. Uh, so that really is, I think, driven by examples like uh, what we're confronting. And similarly, the uh, Abram mentioned that the Provisional Pathways Act would, if, if passed, apply much more broadly, but it is the ALS experience and need that is driving it significantly right now. Others will have similar experiences that can get behind it and join our advocates to really try to push change, but it does uh, really revolve around the uh, specific examples and experiences that that produce change. Abram, I want to go back to something you said a moment ago. When you were talking about promising pathways, you talked about this being, I think you said it was a third iteration and this has been developing over over multiple Congresses. And, you know, watching that process happen can be genuinely and and legitimately frustrating. But can you talk to whether that's normal? Is it is it customary, like, would you expect to have a bill introduced and passed the first time it's put into Congress? Or is it normal, genuinely frustrating at the same time, but normal to see this process have to replicate itself every two years when there's a new new assembly? 
Yeah, and the, the quick answer is yes, that's normal. And first of all, with all both of the Promising Pathway Act and also the Act for ALS Act, I want to say that the, this is probably the third iteration of the Promising Pathway Act and the third or fourth of the Act for ALS Act. And we took the ALS Disability Insurance Access Act last year. We were able to get that passed successfully. And that was a multi-year campaign, multi-Congress campaign to get a bill passed. And so it is very frustrating that it takes this long. But to put it in the context, I want to say that, you know, probably 3% of bills that are actually introduced actually get passed or something really low like that. And most of them are renaming post offices. And so anything that is actually impactful and actually helps patients like the Act for ALS Act or the Promising Pathway Act, it's a, it's a tough process, but there is a lot of energy behind these bills. The Act for ALS Act closed the last Congress with close to 300 co-sponsors, and that's why it's top of mind with members of Congress. We think we can get it done. Um, and whether it's through regular order, through a hearing and markup or or trying to get this passed under suspension or unanimous consent, we'll do whatever it takes. And we'll do the same with the Promising Pathway Act. Whatever strategies we can employ to get it passed as soon as possible and create a provisional approval path in the United States, that's what we're going to do. It can take some time, but there's a lot of energy behind the ALS community and we think we can get it done. I would just add that Abram and the team really have a comprehensive strategy here. So uh, we tend to talk about these things in buckets, right? The, the FDA authorities, the legislation, but they're integrated and they really affect one another. And, and in addition to the push around the legislation, there are opportunities to get progress in the meantime. So you asked earlier, what, what's our, our game plan? Well, you know, the, the, the proof is in the pudding, as they say, right? It'll be how do specific products get to market? Is it faster? more efficient? Is it, are we getting better results? And so the, with the work that's going on in the legislation it is at the same time informing the agency, right, about the community priorities and can they use their existing authorities more successfully around the compounds? So these are, these, you have to think about these not only individually, but together and uh, the association has a comprehensive strategy to, to move forward on all these fronts. Yeah, and uh, strategy that also includes uh, increased funding for, for research at the federal level through those appropriations committees. We'll, of course, share links to the association's public policy priorities in the show notes. Dave, Abram, those are all the questions we had for you this week. Was there anything else you wanted to add before we let you go about your day? Yeah, what, what Dave mentions that, um, you know, accelerating drug to approval, approval development and access is just one of the ALS Association's public policy priorities. The others include increasing funding for ALS research, and that's essential. In order to end the disease, to find treatments and cures, we need more shots on target. We need to know and understand what causes ALS, how we can reduce the harms, how we can make ALS livable until we find a treatment and a cure. That is our strategy. That is what we're going to continue doing, and we hope that you'll support us by visiting als.org forward slash advocacy and joining our advocacy efforts. Dave, Abram, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure. 
Thank you, Abram, and thank you, Dave. That was an excellent conversation, and we look forward to hearing what happens with these two critical bills. Yeah, and as Abram mentioned, be sure to go over to ALS.org, sign up to become an advocate to keep on top of these fights. We will share some resources in the show notes. That's going to do it for this week's episode. You can find Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and please rate and review us. It's a great way for us to be found and connect with more people. This week's episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon.